Hello everybody and welcome back to another episode of Wilderness Wanderings, where we will wander through the wonders of God's Word. I am your host, David Nolan, and for the past few weeks we have been studying through 1 Kings chapter 19, as we explore some of the experiences of Elijah as he struggled with discouragement and depression amidst opposition to his calling as God's prophet to Israel. If you would like to catch up, I highly encourage you to take the time to go through our earlier episodes to get some sense of context on where we have been on this journey so that you are prepared for the next couple of episodes that lie ahead. With that, let's go ahead and jump into our study where today is where we are going to focus on one portion of 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 17. And this is God speaking to Elijah saying, And it shall come about the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu, shall put to death. Now, last week we discussed how Elijah was commissioned to anoint Hazael as king of Aram, who was a hostile foreign kingdom to the north of Israel in what is now modern-day Syria. He was also to anoint Jehu as a new king of Israel while Ahab and Jezebel still sat on the throne in Samaria. Jehu was the son of Jehoshaphat and grandson of Nimshi. This is carried out by Elijah's successor, Elisha. Now, it's interesting to point out that the symbolism of Jehu's name, which is not that much different from the name of God, Yahweh, which means I am, Jehu can actually be translated as Yahu is he. Now, also as we discussed last week, Hazael would be the king that would defeat Ahab in battle of Ramoth-Gilead. Ahab's son, Jehoram, would then ascend to the throne, but it would not be long before Jehu would complete the prophetic extermination of Ahab's dynasty as he defeated Jehoram, then proceeded to defeat his son, Ahaziah, who was king of Judah to the south, and he completed the work by having Jezebel's eunuchs throw her out of a palace window in Jezreel. Now, as a reward for Jehu's obedience in executing God's judgment against Ahab and Jezebel for leading Israel astray, God promised to allow Jehu's family to remain on the throne of Israel for four generations, and ended up being 102 years in all. However, as judgment for Jehu's disobedience in going too far at Jezreel with killing not only Ahab's family, which was the limit of God's mandate, but all of Ahab's bodyguards, his close friends, and his priests, as described in the 10th chapter of 2 Kings. Jehu also went so far as to slaughter a large gathering of Baal worshippers. While we do know that God despised Baal worship, he did not command Jehu to take this action, and he was never commended for it. Additionally, as Jehu was now king of Israel, he was responsible for keeping the Mosaic law, which declared that there would be no idols, and that all the people would worship no other god except for Yahweh. Jehu allowed the golden calves of Bethel and Dan that were erected by King Jeroboam, to remain. For this sin, God allowed Hazael to cut off parts of the kingdom of Israel under 
Jehu's control. In fact, this, quote, sin of Jeroboam persisted through the reign of Jehu great-great-grandson, Zechariah. Now, that's not to be confused with the prophet, Zechariah. He was then deposed and killed through the hands of the Assyrians. The punishment of ending the dynasty of Jehu was prophesied by Hosea in chapter 1, verse 4 and is briefly described in the 15th chapter of 2 Kings in verses 8 through 10. So I would encourage you to take some time to go through and look at those. Now, this is a bit of a rough summary of the reign of Jehu and his descendants. But what is important to note is the hand of God's providence in the midst of all of this bloodshed. When we speak of the providence of God, we often think of his divine authority and influence in the world among us. The history and etymology of the word providence in the English language is actually a combination of two words. The first word is the Latin word providere, which is broken down into the prefix pro, meaning before, and videre, which means to see. Video is where we get the word video from. Now, the second word is the English word provide. And around the late Middle English time period, which ran from 1066 after the Norman conquest of England until the late 15th century, the two words combined and the word providence entered the English language. So what the word means at its root is to provide foresight. The best way to describe this principle of God's providence is this. Take a piece of string and hold it out in front of you from end to end. Now from your vantage point, you can see the entire string from beginning to end. Every strand, every twist of fiber. Think of this string as a timeline. The end of the string on the left is the beginning of time, and the end of a string on the right is the end of time. Thus, time is a linear construct with a beginning and an end. And you are standing over and outside of this construct of time, able to see it all from beginning to end, and beyond the extent of the string. Now, I use the term construct intentionally because it implies that time is a created dimension. Now, who created time? Well, God did, of course. We mark time by our relative position to the sun as we rotate around it. But it is God who created the sun, the earth, the moon, and stars, and then set it all in motion from the beginning. And one day, what we observe as God's creation will all end. But eternity extends beyond the limits of the beginning and end of what we know as time. Time is not a burrito that can fold in on itself, and it's not a giant blob of, quote, wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. It's linear from beginning to end. 
and God, as the creator who is eternal, stands outside of the confines and construct of time itself. As a result, he is the only one who has the ability to see everything that has happened and everything that ever will happen along this linear construct. And from time to time, he would give a portion of this foresight to his prophets, or even his children, in the forms of visions and dreams. Now, there is much debate over whether or not God still provides prophetic visions today, but that is a subject for another day. The providence of God isn't so much about his omnipotence or his omnipresence, but it is related to his omniscience, his knowledge of all things. His knowledge of all that he created, including every event that happens over the course of time, from past to the present into the future. God is not a cosmic puppet master, so to speak, but he does at times intervene in the affairs of mankind, but it is always for the sake of his kingdom. He is always for the sake of preserving his covenant with his people and his children. And it is always in an effort to turn our eyes upon him and submit to his authority as our creator. Now, the word providence only appears in scripture one time. And this is in the 24th chapter of Acts. To illustrate, Paul had been summoned before the governor of Caesarea, and his name was Felix. An orator named Tertullus says these words to the governor. Since we have, through you, attained much peace, and since, by your providence, reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. The Greek word for providence here is pronoia, which, as we already talked about earlier, literally means to know ahead. In fact, Tertullus was describing Felix in flattering terms, attributing the current peaceful state of Palestine to Felix's governing decisions as if he knew beforehand the results his decisions would deliver. But the concept of God's providence is throughout scriptures in more ways than I can count, and in some ways unexpected. If you carefully read the genealogy of Jesus in the first chapter of Matthew, you will find such people as the prostitute Rahab from the book of Joshua, and the foreign widow and Moabitess Ruth. The book of Revelation of John is one giant testament to the providence of God as he shares with John, quote, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. In chapter 1, verse 8, it is written, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. 
In effect, God was saying, I am the beginning and the end of all things. Everything begins with me, everything ends with me, and everything is because I am. What a comfort it is to know that God knows what you are going through. He knows where you have been, and he still loves you. He knows where you are going, and he wants to walk with you there. He wants to empower you to do his will for his kingdom. And he knows of your suffering, and he is there to comfort you and to hold you in the palm of his hand. But you may say, if God is all-knowing and all-loving, why doesn't he do something about the suffering in the world? My wife and I were just discussing this the other day, and she shared something with me, a, a bit of wisdom. She said that everything that happens in this life, either to you or around you, is a direct result of either your choices or the choices of those around you. God loves you enough that he gave you a choice. He gave all of humanity a choice to love him and obey him. And he also established that there are consequences for all of the choices we make, both good and bad. And some of those consequences are greater than others. Sometimes those consequences don't even fall on us for our choices, but on others for our choices, and likewise. Suffering in this world is a direct result of humanity's choice to disobey God's word. Jesus came into this world to suffer on our behalf. He was beaten. He was mocked. All because he dared to challenge the religious authorities' view of who God was and who we are as his chosen people. And he was hung naked on a cross and crucified in front of the entire nation for it. And he did it willingly because of God's great love for you in order to pay the price for your sins so that you can rest in the arms of our Father. If Jesus came to the world in order to suffer, who are we to demand of God that we not suffer in this world? Who do we think we are that we can challenge God's ordained order? Who are we to say that God doesn't care when he paid the highest price imaginable to call us his? If you are suffering today, I can't tell you exactly why. I can't tell you why you may have lost your child. I can't explain why your daughter has run away. I can't explain why your son abuses his wife and children. I can't explain to you why your pain won't subside. I can't explain or understand exactly why your spouse has left you or why God has called them home. And I can't promise you that the pain will ever 100% go away. But what I can tell you this, 
God knows. Jesus sees. And Jesus weeps for our loss. Just as he weeped for the loss of Lazarus, his friend, and for the suffering that his sisters experienced when Lazarus died, knowing that he was just about to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knows our pain, and he cries with us in the midst of it. And God cries his heart out for you, longing for you to come to him and rest in his arms. He wants you to know what life is like when we walk in the light of his word. He desperately wants you to know him. He is dying to get to know you. He died to save you. And there is no greater comfort than knowing that the creator of this universe knows the plans that he has for you. Plans for your welfare and not for evil. To give you a future and to give you a hope. Call upon him. Come and pray to him and he will hear you. If you will seek him, you will find him when you seek him with all your heart. I pray that this message touches your heart today in a very special way. If you want to know more about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, please reach out to us. You can visit our website at wildernesswanderings.org or email us at prayer at wildernesswanderings.org. Please, I want to hear from you and I have an opportunity to pray for you. Lord Jesus, may your spirit touch the heart of anyone who is listening to this message right now. Draw them to you and give them your peace. Amen. Until next time, this is David Nolan encouraging you to always keep your eyes on the sun and wander through the wonder of God's grace. Have a great day.